Lord, we're bowed before you this morning to declare, to confess, Lord, that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no God besides mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. You are the creator of all the earth. Mm-hmm. You're the, you are the author and perfecter of our faith and the lover of our souls. And your love for us was so great that you sent your son, you wrapped him in human flesh, And you sent him to us. You sent him to us, Lord, that we might that we might be with you, that we might recognize our our sin and our failures and our shortcomings, Lord, and receive you as our Savior, receive mm-hmm. him as our Savior. And I just I thank you, Lord, for the obedience of Christ. And I thank you that we have the opportunity to celebrate his birth. I pray, Lord, that as you um, that as you speak to us through Conrad, that our hearts would be open, that we would um, that we would create space, that we would cooperate with the working of your Holy Spirit to mm. allow space in our hearts and in our lives and our minds, Lord, for you to be at work, transforming us and creating us, Lord, to be the people that you have called us to be. And I thank you, Lord, that that is your desire also. Lord, I pray for Conrad as he, um, as he delivers this word that you have for us this morning. I pray, Lord, that he would be um, completely unaware of himself. And Lord, I pray against any fear of man. I pray, Lord, that his eyes would be fixed and focused on you, also the author and perfecter of his faith and the lover of his souls, the one who, who has called him at this time, Lord, to deliver this word. I pray, Lord, for your strength and your, for your boldness and for your courage to be upon Conrad, to be through Conrad, to, be, to sustain him, Lord, to give him strength in his voice and boldness and his courage and, and his spirit, Lord, Thank you for his obedience to your calling. Thank you that your presence is here with us, Lord. May you be honored and glorified by all we, by all we do and say this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Children are dismissed for Children's Church. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' precious name. A blessed Christmas to you and to all of yours this week. As you are aware, perhaps, if you've been with us for this uh, fall, I've chosen to stay away from a specifically Advent series during the season of Advent and to continue with the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, even in this series of Advent uh, or season of Advent, rather than to strictly focus on Christmas themes. And yet... And yet, 
It is impossible to speak of, to preach of, to read about the, uh, Jesus the Messiah without touching on themes that we're reflecting on in this season. Today we're looking at the end of Paul's life. We've been with him all fall. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit sad about coming to the end of this series. It has opened my eyes, I hope yours, to not only Paul, but also more so, importantly, to Jesus Christ as Messiah and understanding him in new ways. And Paul is getting ready to leave this world. He is now aware, Paul up to this point in his life, the Apostle Paul assumed that Jesus would come back while he was still living, that Jesus would come and take his people home. But by this point, Paul is in Rome, and we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4 in a few moments, but Paul is in Rome, and he's in prison, and he's now come to terms with the fact that Jesus is likely not to return in his lifetime, and that he is probably going to die um, before Christ returns. And so he's coming to grips with some of that at the end of his life. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I had to memorize Isaiah 53 for our Christmas program at church. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own or her own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. I remember at 12 or 13, thinking how out of place this passage felt to me as we were celebrating the birth of Christ and what a kind of bummer it was that this was the part that I was assigned for the Christmas program. It seemed so unfitting, this this uh, text from Isaiah about Jesus' death, in which Isaiah is looking forward uh, to Jesus' death on the cross. It seems so unfitting alongside the celebration that the angels brought to the shepherds on the hills that holy night. Peace on earth and goodwill to mankind. How out of place this passage seems with the stockings and the gifts and the tinsel and the trees and the lights and the stars the wise men, and on and on and on, those stories that we enjoy and the season that we enjoy. I couldn't quite figure out as a 12 or 13-year-old why we were already looking ahead to the death of Christ and why we were looking ahead by focusing on such a gory, gory passage. But looking back, it's clear that whoever organized that Christmas program that year knew exactly what they were doing, even if I didn't get it. Because there is no way to celebrate the Messiah's birth, to celebrate Jesus' birth this week, without doing it in the context of the cross. Without doing it not seeing the cross that was to come for Jesus. That the coming death of Jesus on the cross, and then the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, makes this celebration this week 
um, worth it all. It would make no sense this week to celebrate Christmas without the cross. Do you think we would be celebrating Christ's birth without his death and resurrection had he not overcome the dark powers of Satan? I don't think so. Any more so than we celebrate anyone else. We don't celebrate Socrates. We don't have a Socrates day or um, any other um, or ancient figure. Um, and I'm struck this Christmas by how some of the carols, some of the old carols, tell the same story as Paul does and got the, his theology exactly right. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. Tucked right in there in the middle of the celebration. When we were gone astray, O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Or O come, O come, Emmanuel. Verse 4, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road, and bar the way to death's abode. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night, and turn our darkness into light. The coming of Jesus for the prophets, for Simeon, for the angel, was all about dispelling the darkness by the light of Christ. Dispelling the darkness by the Messiah's coming. For Paul, for the Apostle Paul, the coming of Christ, as I've been preaching through most of the series, is so much about what happened on the cross. Not in the strict evangelical sense that I shared last week, that he came primarily to forgive our personal sins, but he did. That's why he came, because we all are sinners, and he came to save us and redeem us and restore us and make us right with God. But first and foremost, Paul says, actually Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus, I have commissioned you to, to tell the story that the powers have been overcome, the dark powers have been overcome by my death and resurrection. And then Jesus says, so that their sins can be forgiven. Paul can't tell, stop telling the story of the Messiah's victory on the cross. It's again part of that story we've been talking about all, all the fall, that eschatological story of God's history. Um, Abraham was called, and then Moses delivered his people from Egypt, and then King David created the golden age out of which Jesus' birth was come, would come later, the exile from Babylon. The Messiah's coming made possible the overturning, the overcoming of the dark powers for you and for me personally, but also for all of creation. And that is such good news. Next week is the final message in this series. And um, so if you have the booklet, it's actually a, a message that was going to be preached earlier, but it's so fitting to have this at the end. Uh, the chapter is, How Will It All End? And what we're going to see as we look at that chapter is Paul's understanding of the new heaven and the new earth is a little bit different than some of our understandings in, in contemporary, um, in, in our modern day time. Paul and the early church understood the coming, the receiving of a new heaven and new earth that was possible because the dark powers had been overcome. 
Um, again, I, I think often in the church, in, in our contemporary church, we often talk very little about the dark powers. It's kind of we dance around them. Paul didn't dance around them. He went right at them. He could go at them, and we can go at them, because the Messiah has come. Amen? Amen. Because the Messiah has given us victory over those powers. If Christ has given victory over those powers, then you too, and I too, as sons and daughters of Christ, have victory over those powers. Jesus Christ crucified has overcome the powers for all time. Paul can't keep from saying this and preaching this as he marches across Asia and the Roman Empire. This is his central theme. The powers have been overcome by the Messiah. Even though the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John does not, although John has chapter 1 about the word, come flesh, um, even though the gospel writers make a, a relatively big deal of the Messiah's coming and his birth to Bethlehem, and I'm glad they do, and, and we're all glad they do, by the time Paul is on the road to Damascus and meets Jesus face to face, he seems to have forgotten the details of, of the Messiah's birth because he never talks about them. He never goes back. But what he lands on all of the time is the details of the Messiah's death and resurrection. Because for Paul, that is the place of transformation. That is the place of healing. It doesn't make, it doesn't make this day and this season unimportant. It's just that without the cross, this day becomes unimportant. Amen? Without the cross, this day is irrelevant. And so we have to celebrate within the context and the shadow of the cross. This brings us to today's message. And perhaps the final words that Paul ever wrote that were ever recorded before his death or at least the final words that we have from Paul that survived um, as his final words. Paul is sitting at this point in Rome, waiting for trial before the emperor. He had requested a trial. He was a Roman citizen, and he had requested a trial to, 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 to set straight who he was and why he had been um, persecuted all of these years. But he's writing to his mentee, Timothy, his protege, Timothy, in, in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 2. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the final chapter and probably the final words that we have from the Apostle Paul. Um, so, first, 2 Timothy 4, Colin? I'm sorry? 965. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, it's page 965 in the Bible that should be under the chair in front of you. Um, if you don't have one, I apologize for that, but it's page 965. Um, if you'd like to follow along and uh, read these words of Paul as he ends his life. We're always, at least I am, and I think we often are, intrigued by one's last words at their death. One's last words seem to us to indicate what was most important to us. They're just on the verge of eternity, and they're looking back, really looking back, and they're words that they want to say to us, words of caution, words of encouragement, words of reminder, words of what they see coming. So final words are important for us, and we get this incredible opportunity to hear Paul's words uh, toward the end of his, his life. Verse 6 I'm going to start with in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. My life I am giving up, Paul says. 
My life I am allowing to God to pour out now as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. So throughout all of the doubts that Paul had about whether he was on the right track or whether there was value in what he's doing, he now lands on this at the end of his life. And he says, indeed, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race I have kept the faith. With confidence, before he meets his maker, before he meets his Messiah, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who long for his appearing. You get the sense that Paul yearned for the appearing of Christ that he was so smitten again by the love of Christ, that he yearned to see Christ. He, he, learned to be embra- he yearned to be embraced by Christ. And then he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. It's interesting that after verses 6 to 8 that are so poetic, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I finished the race. He then goes into these kind of everyday details. These are the people who've abandoned me. These are the people who I've sent on to other places. Hey, by the way, I need my cloak. I need my books. Can you bring those down too? You know, I think Paul was kind of alternating between um, this, this awareness that he was leaving, and yet while he was here, these were the things that concerned him. And then he goes on in verse 14. Alexander, the metal worker, did a great deal of harm to me. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord is at my side, stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, he says with confidence, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We get the picture in this passage now of a tired apostle. We've set up to this point that he, one of the characteristics of Paul was that he was zealous. He had this incredible zeal from the time he met the Messiah on. He was zealous for the good news that Jesus has come to redeem us and to redeem the world. But we get the sense here that he's begun to be worn down by his suffering and by the rejection of many. While he references a few of those who've rejected him, Alex the Alexander the metal worker, and Demas, N.T. Wright says that most of the people in Asia who had come to Christ had rejected Paul by this point in his life. He was rejected by many people by this point. Folks, Paul was no Christian celebrity. He's not ending his life on an up note in terms of his popularity or his fame or his money. Paul was no celebrity who would show up at Giants Stadium or Arena or Leffler Chapel or the American Music Theater or a football stadium to the beat of Christian contemporary music and a fog machine emerge with raucous crowds of fans. That was not Paul's style. 
it was not Paul's message. Paul's message was not particular, particularly um, appreciated because it was always the message of the cross. It was always the message of giving up my life to Christ, dying to myself so that I might gain Christ. That was his repeated message. And so we get this picture of one who is finding himself fatigued. He didn't have a website or a Facebook page. He didn't tweet his latest Holy Spirit-inspired quote. He didn't market his stuff on Amazon. He didn't sell books. He didn't sign autographs. He did nothing to commodify the gospel. In fact, there are places he went where he wouldn't allow the church to pay him because he said, I, don't, I just want to show you that I'm in this for the right reasons. I'm in this for my love of Messiah. I don't want anything gained from this. I'm in this for Jesus, who I love and who I've given my life to. Instead of accumulating, he lets go of everything that was gained to him. In Philippians 3, I've left it go. He released rather than accumulated. He laid down rather than putting himself forward. He lost his life that he might gain Christ. But in the end, it was Paul's writings that remained. It was Paul's writings that dominate the New Testament epistles more than any other apostle. And so though he was beaten and though he was abused and though many in the church despised him and abandoned him and were his enemies, at the end of the day, it is Paul's legacy and his legacy of the Messiah that remained. Because folks, that's what will always remain. If we preach and if we teach the victory that Christ has brought on the cross, that message will remain. Other messages will disappear. But that one that the dark powers have been overcome and our sins have been forgiven is a keeper. It is the keeper. It is the eternal message that will resonate through all of eternity and it continues to resonate from Paul's writings. Philippians 3 uh, turn with me, if you would, to a few verses from there. Philippians 3, um, which we've looked at in this series before, but it's really, Paul can get to the point he is in 2 Timothy 4 because he's done Philippians 3. Paul can say, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race, because he, he does in Philippians 3 what he does, that we're going to see in a moment again. Philippians 3, 9.52. In the Bible, if you're using our uh, Pew Bible. Philippians 3. Whatever he's just finished in the first few verses describing everything that he had going for him. He was scholarly. He was credentialed. He uh, was a top in his class. He was a high, important Jewish leader. But he says, you know what? I've given it all up. Everything that was important to me, everything that was my identity... I have given up for the sake of Christ. Whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I want, to, I want you to focus on that for a moment, that worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. We're, probably many of us are giving gifts and getting gifts this season. But I want to remind you that no gift you get and no gift you give is going to be worth, is going to be, hold a candle to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. No gift. So give the gifts, enjoy the gifts. But in light of those gifts, don't ever forget that the worth of knowing Jesus Christ, Paul says, is, is greater than any other thing. 
In fact, he's given everything else up. I suspect if he gave Paul a gift, he'd give it away. He lost everything, he said, for the sake of, for the worth of knowing Christ, the value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Because Paul's perspective, folks, was not, it was not temporal, it was eternal. Paul had his eyes focused beyond what is. Paul had this knack of seeing what was to come. Paul had this ability to articulate what was to come. He, he, he has a cosmic perspective of the world. It's not just tomorrow and the next day. And it's not just what's going on in my life. It's this cosmic story of God who rescued humankind from our sin and from our death and from our darkness. That is your story. That is my story. If we allow it to be, if we give our hearts and our lives to Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, this is verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, he said, that I may know Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness or a goodness of my own, I can't do enough good stuff, he says. It's not about what I can do good. I can't make it on that basis. But that which is through faith in Christ, and remember we've talked about that word faith. It is In Greek, it is P-I-S-T-I-S. Testis, and it means the loyalty of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. Not my faithfulness, not working up enough faith on my part, but the loyalty of Christ. That, that which is through faith or through loyal, the loyalty of Christ, the goodness, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then you can hear him pouring out his heart, I want to know Christ more than anything else. I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and there it is. And participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so that somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul had linked by this point the suffering with Christ to the resurrection. That as we suffer, as we experience suffering, we begin to die to ourselves and to that which is important to us. As we suffer, we begin to let go of what was most important to us. And as we let go, we begin to gain Christ. Because Jesus himself said we can't serve money and God. And the tighter we cling to the stuff, the, the less tight we cling to Christ. But the more we let go of the stuff, the more we let go of that which identifies us as important to us, the more there is space for Christ to be received within us. As I was reading this passage, I was thinking about how important it is to keep the end of our life in view to keep the horizon of our life in view. Seeing one's end, looking beyond what is towards one's end, has a way of helping us to let go of those things that are less important. To stop clutching at those things that we'll never, that we'll never take with us. To stop striving, to stop performing, to allow ourselves to stop holding on to the idols that we think we need and to let go and allow Christ to hold on to us. Suffering has a way of preparing us for the end. We want to avoid it. We want to, we, we want to do whatever we can to, take, to, to miss it. But it is the one thing, and Paul, I mean, get this from Paul, it is the thing that leads us to Christ. It is the thing that allows us to let go of those things that are less important and to move towards Jesus. Suffering is a way of preparing us for the end and of anticipating the end. Paul is yearning for the end in this passage. You can hear it. I can't wait to see the Messiah. It's not a death wish. It's not a suicidal wish. 
But it's a recognition that so much of what one desires on earth will only be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth. A couple of weeks ago, I was with our family, and I'll just say there were some things relationally that we wish would have been different, like every family, and that will probably happen at all of your Christmases. You know, we anticipate so much. The anticipation is in our hearts, but then we get there and we go through it, and the meal that we prepared for 12 hours is finished in 20 minutes, right? And although we said we weren't going to talk about politics, we do, and on and on and on and on. And we go home and you say, wow, I, I wish it had been a little different. That yearning is a heavenly yearning. That yearning is a yearning that God has placed in your heart for something that is not yet, but that is to come. Something that will only be experienced when we get to glory with Jesus Christ, where there will be no more tears and no more suffering and no more pain. And that was my extended family I'm talking about, not our own nuclear family. That place where we will experience joy in our relationships where all pain will be resolved, where chronic suffering will be gone, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, where we are made whole. Amen? That's our hope. Why do we not talk about that more? It's an incredible hope. It's, it's a hope worth talking about with our children. Because the absence of being whole here on earth only causes our souls to growl like our stomachs when they're hungry. We may not always understand what we're growling for, but it's eternity. It's glory with Christ. It's wholeness and healing. The absence of whole relationships here only increases our desire for the arms of the one who will resolve all things. The absence of answers here only intensifies intensifies our heart's desire to experience the one who has the answers to all of our problems and challenges. Indeed, the suffering we experience here intensifies our desire for the joy that awaits us. All of these things have a way of magnifying that joy, the joy that waits for us in heaven and the new earth, and has a way of amplifying that heavenly music on the hills of Bethlehem that was meant for us as much as it was for those shepherds. Charles Foucault says this, pity those whose happiness keeps them attached to the world. I love that quote. Pity those whose happiness keeps them attached to the world. God is so good, he said. God is good that has so despoiled us of everything that we can draw our breath only by turning our heads to him. How great is his mercy, how divine his goodness, for he has torn everything away from us in order that we may be completely his. So when he tears stuff away from you, remember he is making you his. And so Foucault says, so the sufferers are the happy ones through the goodness of God. And it's at Christmas time when he's writing this. May these days of Christmas festival bring you in your suffering. And while some of you are filled with joy this morning, some of you are suffering. Some of you are in dark places. Some of you got dark news this week. Some of you got hard news this week. Some of you are in the middle of relational struggles, challenges. Some of you are unsettled. Some of you are anxious. This is a word for us, folks. This is a word for us. May these days of Christmas festival bring you in your suffering. I do not say consolation or comfort, 
but the blessing that God intends for you. The child Jesus will perhaps not give you any sweetness. He reserves that for the weak ones. But his hands will nonetheless be spread to bless you in these days of Christmas tide. And whether you feel it or not, he will pour abundant grace into your soul. You see, for the saint, each experience of suffering begins to have a cumulative effect in two different ways. It slowly creates the death of oneself and causes us to cling less tightly to those things that we thought were so important before. But it also builds anticipation for that day when every tear will be gone and all the suffering will be passed. Suffering does two things. It slowly creates the death of ourself and causes us to cling more tightly to Jesus. And we see that in Paul. But it also builds anticipation of a day when every expectation that we ever had will be met in Christ. Heidi and I are thoroughly enjoying our grandson Ezra, and we put photo cards in your boxes this morning so you get a chance to see him. But when I look at his sweet smile, and the rest of us, um, our, our son and granddaughter, and daughter-in-law also, who when they show up wonder if we're happy to see them or not. Um, but as I look at his sweet smiling face, I try not to think about the pain he will face. I try not to think about the playground experiences that might be difficult for him. I try not to think about the challenges and suffering that Ezra will, will, will experience that will eventually create wrinkles in his smooth and tender face. And yet, we must prepare our children to look towards the end. We must help them to keep their end in view. We must help them to live well for the end when we're no longer here to guide them. We must prepare them for the end so that they end well and end with an anticipation of the glory that is to come. More than ever before, I hope you, like I, yearn and anticipate and get excited about seeing Jesus. To experience that new heaven and new earth where the Messiah reigns and where all things have come together in him. And where the darkness has no presence to intimidate, to threaten, to lie, to deceive, to create anxiety or fear. This is why Christmas must be connected to the cross. Not in a way that diminishes the joy of Christmas or the joy of seeing this dear child, but that actually heightens the joy when we become aware that it is through this child that our freedom and our life and our own, and our own resurrection become realities. Folks, because of the coming of the Messiah child, we have nothing to fear in life and death. Nothing to fear. But only to rejoice with those angels, those shepherds, and even those sheep. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. I'm going to pray a prayer this morning, and if you have not given your life to Jesus, and you're not sure that when your end comes, you, like Paul, will be able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I'm ready to meet my Lord, I'm going to pray a prayer and just give you an opportunity in your own heart and mind to pray that prayer, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or do anything else, but it's between you and God, but just that you'd be ready to meet him when he comes for you. So if you will... If you're there, or you're, you're in that space, and you want to pray after me in your own heart and mind, just do. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have overcome. 
that you've overcome the darkness and the dark powers. The darkness that I face, the darkness that I fear, the darkness that threatens to take away my joy and my life. And thank you also that you've come to forgive my sins. Those places where I'm broken. Those places where I've broken other people. And so I ask your forgiveness. And I ask you to receive me as your child forever and ever. Amen.